Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Roma Shranganathan was a math teacher before devoting his life to stand-up comedy in 2012. Since then, he has found great success in the UK, nominated for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2013, and with TV appearances on Live at the Apollo, many panel shows, and his own BBC series for two years, Asian Provocateur. For his next trick, Ramesh came to America to see if he could duplicate his comedy success in the States and filmed it for a new TV series, Just Another Immigrant, which premieres in June 2018 on Showtime. Of course, he's not just another immigrant, but he wanted to show us what it would look like if he were, uprooting his wife, three kids, and Sri Lankan mother from West Sussex to Los Angeles. So let's get to it! So, Ramesh, um, as, as we were saying when we met in the lobby, yes. this is not the Days in. No, it's uh, the Beverly Wilshire, the, yeah. pr- the Pretty Woman Hotel. So you've moved up a lot since the first episode of Just a <laughs> uh, Yeah, I wish I could tell you that um, this is a direct result of my uh, impact on the States, but it isn't. I'm just here doing a cameo role as a guest at the uh, Beverly Wilshire. It's nice, well, though. How, how important was it for you? I mean, the, sh- the Showtime series is called Just Another Immigrant. So how important was it for you to portray your American experience as though you were not a star. As though I was not a star. Um, as if you were just another immigrant. Yeah, well, the truth is is that um, I didn't know, I had no idea how much, if anybody would have heard of me. You know, you don't know what your impact, sometimes you go to mm-hmm. another country, like I went to Australia on tour, and actually there was an audience there. So you never know what your profile's gonna be. But, um, but we wanted it to be how it is. Do you know what I mean? So if it, if I'd have come over here, and loads of people have been recognising me, and then then we would have reflected that in the show. But the truth is, is that nobody knew who I was, and we sort of suspected that would be the case. But also, the just another immigrant sort of comes from the fact that um, that, like you said, it is it is what I am and what I'm representing, and I, I happen to be a comedian as my job. But alongside that, I'm still bringing my family over here. Do you know what I mean? I've still got the issues of trying to keep my family happy, trying to do the right things in, in that regard. So that's kind of where it all came from, really. Okay. And so you filmed in 2017. Yeah. Had you made the deal with Showtime before Trump was elected or after Trump was elected? <laughs> it's post-Trump. Uh, was, did that help seal the deal? Actually? I don't know. I mean, it might have done. They might have thought, like brown guy with a beard like coming to the states we've got to see how this goes down do you know what i mean but um but i I didn't know how much because when i told my friends in the uk that i was coming over here they all sort of laughed and said you do know how your look might go down at the moment but i I thought to myself i'm coming to la so do do you know what i mean you don't know if la is like super liberal right so Mm -hmm. you sort of think even if there are areas in the states that in Trump's America are different or less welcome, whatever. The truth is I'm in LA and you sort of think it might be a bit different. And actually, I was sort of open to just seeing how it, how it is. I, I wouldn't have been more surprised if I'd have got a lot of discrimination or stereotyping than if I'd have got none at all. I, I really did come into it not having any idea, really. Well, you also portrayed it, as, I mean, 
you had been on television with James Corden before. Yeah. But you didn't want to portray it as though you were coming here and calling in favors. Yeah. Well, I sort of, um, I know James from doing, uh, we do a show together called League of Their Own in the UK. So I know James a little bit from that. But, uh, and so like, you know, you do, part of the thing was I wanted to try and, I wanted to try and just see how I got on without trying to call in those folks. Do you know what I mean? And also, I don't want to be that guy. Without broadcasting. I'm doing a Showtime series. Yeah, 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 exactly. Can I do a spot at the Comedy Store? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of course you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So You're I wanted, on television for Showtime. Yeah, so I wanted it to be more like, let's see what happens. And, and then I didn't want to, I didn't really want to be that guy that's tapping up James for this, that, and whatever. So, and also that... Of course, spoiler alert, you did do The Late Late Show yes. before you performed at The Great. Yes, I did, yeah. Eventually, I did have to... I did, like, <laughs> I mean, it, gives you, exists. it gives you an indication <laughs> of, of how it went that I ended up doing what I initially promised myself I wouldn't do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I did end up doing that. But I sort of wanted to... I had no idea how the, the LA circuit worked. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of similarities between the British circuit and the American circuit. What I was, to be honest with you, what I was sort of excited about was the fact that it was exhilarating to be treated as like an open mic comedian again. Do you know what I mean? And have to prove yourself. Yeah, and like you turn up and you know nobody, like nobody gives a shit about your profile or whatever. You know, like and and you just you go and do this gig at the back of a pizza place and you you feel like your stuff has been treated on its own merits and you know the first couple of gigs I did I, I like I completely like tanked do you know what I mean where I was trying to get my eye in I guess and then it sort of got better as I went along but there was something exhilarating about that and I, I think you know one of the things when I started to get like a bit of a profile in the UK when I started to write and I was writing a new tour show and what I would do is drop in at gigs on the like as an unannounced guest and sometimes I'd worry that um that I wasn't the stuff wasn't getting the response based on the quality of the stuff and it's getting the response based on maybe they're excited because they weren't expected Someone to see me yeah 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 and so you're trying to deal with that whereas in America there was no danger of that at all <laughs> do you know what I mean absolutely no danger of them being excited to see me <laughs> so um, so that was it was actually quite exciting to to do that and uh, it's one of the things that I hadn't anticipated enjoying as much which was sort of starting starting from the bottom you know in terms of, of gigging and stuff I really liked it now I know this this came up in the in the first episode. I'm friends with Hari Kondabolu, yes. who uh, made a documentary, The Problem with Apu. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's created a kerfuffle with The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, you, get, you get a little bit of that when you first come to America. Yeah. Was that an issue in the UK? Or uh, no, or is it... I mean, I mean the truth is, is that um, in the UK, it's, it's less... It's a bit. I mean, it's not. It's not black and white. Is the truth of it. But because there's more immigration from the part of the world that I come from to the UK than there is over here, proportionately speaking. The UK does have an uh, history with India. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so because of that, because of that, they're they're more expect. They're not surprised by a brown person having an English accent or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the in, in America, it felt that I, I don't think it was that they're expect. I mean, the cab driver in that first episode yeah. is expecting me to sound like I've just got off the boat. But like, but but I think it's just the fact that I had an English accent. He does accent. the Apu voice. He does. He fully. He does the Apu voice. He wobbles his head. I mean, it was great. I mean, I, I, I mean, it was racist. But I think the execution you can't. You've right. got to give full marks for. Do you know what I mean? I think he really nailed it. He knew he was on television. And he <laughs> went for it. <laughs> he fully went he for it. Made it. Yeah. Didn't and get cut. No. 
But I think that um, I think that I wouldn't say I experienced issues. There were certain things where people had certain expectations of you, or they they made certain assumptions. But it wasn't like it wasn't something I was conscious of. But the of Simpsons the whole time. didn't have that effect. Growing well, up in the UK. In the UK, well, the tr the, the honest tr truth of it is, in the UK, there there's not a lot of representation of of, of British Asians or British South Indians or Sri Lankans or whatever on, on UK television. But there is a bit. I think Apu uh, in The Simpsons in the UK has a different effect than Apu in The Simpsons in the US does because you see characters who originate from that part of the world not talking with that accent or, or behaving in different ways. So Apu is one type of character, but you see a whole lot of different characters. I think the issue with maybe Apu in America is that for some people in the United States who haven't had first-hand contact with people from that part of the world, that's their, only, that's their only exposure to that sort of person. And so immediately they make a generalization. They think everybody sounds like that. And, uh, uh, you know, arguably the cab driver watched The Simpsons and then that's why he assumed that I was going to talk like that when I got in the, ca right. in the car. What I would say about The Simpsons is, is that The Simpsons is equally offensive about almost every ethnic group. Do you know what I mean? And, and so, so in that way, it's racial equality, really. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like the, the Italian, I can't remember his, his name escapes me, but oh, the, right. the guy that runs the Italian restaurant, I mean, he's smashing out the he's stereotypes as well. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's just sort of an even-handed uh, disrespect for all ethnic groups, really. Now, for you, comedy wasn't the first choice career. No. Well, no. I, I always loved comedy, and uh, but, you, but you didn't pursue it at first. No, no, mainly because being you know my parents are Sri Lankan, and the idea is, is that you go to college and you become a doc. I mean, the ideal is you become a doctor. What became clear early on was that I was I didn't have the academic ability to, or, or inclination to do that. So, so I did love comedy. Like my family grew up watching comedy. Like my dad is upset. My dad and I used to watch loads of stand up together. My mum is obsessed with comedy of a different kind. She's obsessed with uh, Peter Sellers and uh, Inspector Cl all the physical sort of slapstick stuff. So there's loads of comedy in our house. We watched it all the time, but it never occurred to me to do it as a career just because one, it just seems so unlikely to do that. And two, my upbringing was like, you're going to study, you're going to go into finance or medicine or whatever. And, you, and so it just hadn't occurred to me. You went into teaching? And so, Yeah, eventually I went into teaching. So I became a maths teacher. And, uh, and that was great. And I enjoyed doing that. But um, I ended up sort of, I guess like loads of teachers, uh, well, a lot of teachers have failed something else. Whereas I was a teacher first and I decided to have a go at failing at comedy after I'd started teaching. So it's a different way of doing it. So I started doing comedy as a, as a hobby. Like I thought it'd make me cooler as a teacher maybe. I thought I'd give a go at, have a go at stand-up. So I started doing it and then it sort of, I started to get offered more gigs and started to get offered paid work. The biggest issue I had was that kids started turning up to my gigs. Oh. So obviously they found out that like Ranganath and the maths teacher started doing comedy. Let's go check it out. And I was dying on my ass, you know, because I just started doing, I was tanking. And then it's impossible to maintain any level of authority in a classroom when that kid has seen you like die on your hoop in front of eight people in the corner of a bar. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? It's, it's very difficult to maintain any kind of control of the classroom. So it was, um, it was an interesting start into it, yeah. That's interesting you say that because I've run into more than a few comedians who were teachers and after talking to enough of them, you realize, oh, being a teacher, you already have a captive audience. Yeah. 
yes, but, yeah, and I talk. But you weren't using your your classroom as an audience. No, I mean the, the problem was I'm a maths teacher, and like you can't make numbers funny. Not really. I mean, it's very difficult to sort of make to get a lot of banter out of adding fractions with different denominators or whatever, oh. you know. So, but what I would say it was good training in terms of. Stand-up comedy is arguably easier than... Because with teaching, I'm confined to talk about maths. Do you know what I mean? I can't start breaking out a thing about airplane food or whatever. So you have to make that interesting. And I was teaching like kids of very low ability at times because it's okay. all like different ability groups I used to teach. And so it is a similar challenge in terms of like... You've got to try and get kids that don't give a shit about maths engaged in it. And in the same way with stand-up, you've got to get the people engaged with what you're saying but you can talk about whatever you want in stand-up. So I do think there were some transferable skills, but I wasn't blowing the roof off any maths lessons, if, if that's what you mean. I, I wasn't a particularly funny teacher. I was more sort of just sort of laid back and, um, if anything, liberated by, my, um, by not really caring. So how did you win over those students who had seen you? I didn't, is the honest show. <laughs> the truth is, once the kids had seen me do stand-up, I had to just go, mm -hmm. okay, look, that was pretty humiliating. Mm -hmm. Could you please uh, do this? Uh, yeah, well, you can't. There's no comeback from that. They don't, the thing is, I thought... Did that help you make the transition fully and go, well, I can't go back to the classroom well, one, anymore. Once I guess it, I've got to dedicate myself yeah. to stand-up. Well, once you've done enough gigs and enough kids have seen you, you've basically burnt your bridges of education. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Once every single kid at the school has seen you... You're done, do you know what I mean? But um, yeah, it did. I, I mean, the truth is I like teaching. I really enjoyed it. But I, I, I really love doing comedy. So the comedy started to take off and then it just became a bit of a situation. I was basically being terrible at teaching and being terrible at comedy because I was like teaching for the day. Mm -hmm. Then I'd go home, get changed, go and do a gig. Then the next morning I'd be like planning my lessons on the way to the, to the classroom. It's like really bad. I mean, I was... And then, and I had kids as well. So, I mean, I was absolutely nailing being shit at everything in all aspects of my life. How did you make the transition? What well, did you do? I just, I essentially just handed in my resignation as a teacher. Uh, and How long had you been doing comedy at that point? I guess like maybe four or five years, something like that. Okay. So I gave so up. So you did spend four years doing both. To do both. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a horrible, I had a horrible incident where I used to tell and I don't want you to judge me on this because it's one of the first bits of stand-up I ever wrote no judgment I wrote a bit about essentially using a pastry to sexually pleasure myself mm. now it's not something I would do now but at that time it was like my big closer right so in I, life or on stage it's not something it, you do now well <laughs> you know art imitates life right. doesn't it but, but anyway sure. so I, I, done, I, was, I did this comedy competition and I did that bit mm -hmm. and I didn't know that they'd filmed that gig and then they put it up on YouTube. I had no idea about this because they didn't tell me they were going to do it or whatever. And then one you day... You sign a release, sir. No, nothing. I mean, it was all completely illegal. Mm. So anyway, the next, a couple of days later, I was, I was at school and then I was just handing out exercise books. And one of the kids <laughs> says, do you fancy a pastry, sir? And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so then I had to pretend that I wasn't completely panicked by what the kid had said. I was like, oh, shut up. Just carried on with the lesson. Uh -huh. But in my head, I was thinking, I've got to find out how he, how does he know, how does he know? Anyway, I found out and I had to like, pretend that I had a legal team that were gonna take down this company if they didn't take the clip down. But by then the damage had been done. Every kid had watched it. <laughs> So I had to drop the pastry bit. That was the most heartbreaking mm. bit of it. Who, who, was, who was most helpful to you in the beginning of your comedy? 
Uh, I mean, when I started doing gigs, my my wife was pretty helpful in terms of. Um, she's not helpful with material at all. She's got a dreadful sense of humour. But what she was good at is she was a drama teacher. She's quite good at helping with my delivery and stuff like that. She used to take me to gigs and stage presence and yeah and all that stuff. And she'd say things like. You touched your face 27 times during that five-minute set. It, it was annoying and blah, blah. Pretty brutal stuff, but, like, it was really useful. Um, uh, so she was very good. My mum my and dad were actually incredibly supportive. My dad used to come and watch all of my gigs. Um, and he would veer between being massively supportive and hugely critical. Like, sometimes I would do a gig and then he would say... I'd come off stage and he'd go, if you want to do this for a job get better you know he would literally that would be his feedback and then other times he would go i don't know why you're not on tv yet. you know it was it was he, they, were, they were very very supportive um and then it was just like i think a lot of stuff that happened to me was due to, was down to luck Do you know i mean there's a there's a, a british comedian called sean walsh who's a, a, a mate of mine who when i first started he saw me at a gig and liked my stuff and then started recommending me to people and then when i was struggling he hired me to write on a TV show he was working on and that money helped me get by. And then he had a launch show for that, for that show. I performed at that launch show and at that show were the producers of this uh, uh, British TV show called Live at the Apollo. And off the back of that performance, they asked me to go and do Live at the Apollo. So it sort of felt like this quick, not quick, but like this, I felt like I, was, I had a lot of like being in the right place at the right time moments. And, and Sean was very instrumental in that. I've had a lot of of luck with people sort of taking me under their wing and did all that stuff happen before you went to edinburgh for the first time uh so i went to edinburgh i think the first time i went to edinburgh with a solo show mm. i just found out before that that i was going to be doing live at the apollo i think okay. which took the pressure off that festival a bit but um but yeah, it was. I ha I've had a lot of people. And obviously, I'm sat next. I should mention I'm sat next to my agent, Flan. She's been absolutely wonderful and, <laughs> and so instrumental. And uh, and I couldn't have done it without her. But you were one of the best newcomers at Embro, right? I got nominated for best newcomer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was you, was your dad still alive for? N uh, for no, any of that? no. My, my dad, he basically essentially saw all of me being shit. And then as soon as I achieved any, before I achieved any success, he passed away. Um, so yeah, it's unfortunate that he, he, he popped his clogs thinking I was dreadful at it, do you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, it was, cause he Although was- Although maybe that was like a, a Faustian deal he made. That's what I wonder. I wonder I'll if he's like, myself. I wonder if he's on some like- his career. He's on some hamster wheel in the depths of mm -hmm. hell now in exchange for me uh, achieving on TV or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so he, the, the truth is, it's like when I, when I quit teaching, so I had to hand in my resignation like six or seven weeks before I was due to leave. And then three days before my last day, my dad passed away of a heart attack just all of a sudden. So then what happened is that once I left, so obviously I was dealing with that as I finished teaching. And then I had to, like my dad ran a pub and we had to like, my brother and I had to sort of, had to deal with the finances, all of that. And so what it meant was is that I was going into comedy full time but I didn't really have my eye on it because I was trying to look after, make sure my mum was all right. I was trying to deal with my dad's finances. And then what happened was, is that we, I ended up being broke, like because I just didn't have enough time to chase work or anything like that. Was there ever a moment where you thought you might end up running the pub instead? Well, I did run the pub. I did sort of run the pub for a little bit, mm -hmm. but my deep, deep 
profound distaste for running a pub and interacting with members of the public meant that that was never really going to become a reality. Do you know what I mean? Right, because you're not interacting with them on your terms. No, exactly. At the pub. Well, my dad was like a properly like social guy, and it was a very it was a it's a proper old pub with like three guys and a dog on a rope. Do you know what I mean? It's like one of those places, and it was very personal. West Sussex, or yeah, it was in West Sussex, and it's one of those. Um, one of those personality-driven pubs. Mm-hmm. And it turns out I don't have the personality to drive a pub. So, so I did, did try and run it for a bit. But in the end, I was just like, this can't happen, man. This cannot happen. So, so you shouldn't have been surprised when those brand marketers said you, you don't have the personality. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's too quiet to be a I pub know. owner. Well, that was the thing. Because like, when those brand marketers talked to me about it, because these guys, you know, we're trying to get these guys mm-hmm. to, to help us out. They just, I wondered if it was an American thing because like, in Britain, it's so... One of the things I noticed, like, for example, on the circuit, you know, when you're doing gigs, one of the things I noticed, one of the first differences is in America, every time I've gigged, they've said to me, what do you want me to say about you? Like, what are your credits? Sure. What do you want me to say about you before you go up? In Britain, if anybody said, can you say this about me? You'd be, you'd be labelled an arrogant arsehole. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's all about sort of going, can you just say my name and that's it? And I might not be very good, but I'm just coming here to give it a go. That's what it is. <laughs> just pronounce Whereas, my name correctly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Whereas in the States, it's properly like bang, 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 bang. And then I started to worry that because I'm sort of not that type, that maybe that would work against me. And then when I met those brand marketers and they were going, you're not bigging yourself up. You're not like, you're not saying I'm going to do this and you're not, you're not got any energy to us. I thought, oh God, this is bad, man. Maybe I'm not suited to this. Do you know what I mean? So when you're coming off uh, your first Edinburgh, you're starting to do TV. Was there any inclination then that you might want to come to America at some point or were you just happy to have success and see how far you could take it uh, in the UK well I, I think the truth is is that you know the stand up that I started watching and the comedy that I started watching uh, when I was growing up was almost exclusively American like I, you know I used to watch a lot of Richard Pryor and I got into Eddie Murphy and people like that and I, I watched a lot of American stand up and then um, and then I, I got into British stand up after I got into American stand up really so when I started doing comedy I always had a love for an Ameri- American comedy, probably more so than my, like, my people that were starting around the same time as me in Britain. So I, it was always, I guess it was always in my head that I'd like to come and see how I get on, got on. But the truth is, when you try and do comedy, you're rolling the dice, like you've got no idea how it's going to go. Do you know what I mean? Like so many people, good people, try and do comedy and make it their career and don't make it for whatever reason. And so... I never thought I'm going to I'm going to do it in the UK and then I'm going to do it in America. All my goal ever was when I started in the UK was wouldn't it be amazing if I could pay my rent or my bills from comedy. That would be the most incredible thing that could ever happen. And it eventually I was lucky enough that it did happen and then everything else is a bonus. So that's how I still consider it to this day that everything over and above that is like a, a is a bonus. And so like but then, once I got to a point where my profile had got to a point in the UK, I thought, I'm lucky enough now to give it a go, do you know what I mean, to see. But never did I think, I'll make it in the UK, and then the next thing I'll do is I'll make it in the US. I, I didn't even think I was going to make it in the UK. and I, I thought, I just need to see if I can make a basic wage from like doing comedy. If I do that, it'd be like dream come true stuff, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so when it came time to decide that you're ready to come to America. Yeah. Was it, how much of it was dependent upon 
getting a TV deal? Uh, the truth is it, it wasn't really. I mean, I, I sort of like... Uh, getting a TV deal, uh, I guess, accelerates the process, but I was always going to. Because then you're coming to America and it's being documented. Exactly, exactly, and that and and that obviously makes a difference. But I was always going to come to America and see how I got on, regardless. Do you know I mean that was always a plan? And like even like from when Flo and I first started working together, I'd always said like one of my things is I'd like to I'd like to go and see how I get on in America. So. Um, to whatever degree that might have been, you know, it, it might have been that I just ended up coming out of here and it, did a couple of months here every year of trying to do gigs and stuff like that. So had you been here at all before? No, no. I mean, I've been here on holiday, but mm -hmm. I'd not. But not for any I'd, gigs. No, I'd watched comedy here, but I'd never done any comedy here. No, no, no. But I knew. I mean, I I watched so much Amer American stand up and. The f so I, I knew I, I knew all of the Americans, mm. all of the ones that certainly had made it to a certain level. What I didn't know is anything about the actual open mic circuit or anything like that. And that is something that only when I came over here, I started to get an appreciation for. Do you right. Know I mean? the, 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 where you will have a gig in L.A. blows my mind. right? Because like, in, in the U.K., you have gigs in bars and stuff like that. I did a gig where sometimes your set gets interrupted by a pizza order coming through. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's mad. You'll turn anything into a gig. It's amazing. I mean, I think it's amazing. It's slightly different in Los Angeles than New York. Right, right, right. And, right. and both of those are slightly different than everywhere else in yeah, America. Yeah. Um, tell me about the pitching process for Showtime. And did you go to other networks as well? Uh, well, I wasn't really involved in the pitching process, to be honest with you. So okay. it was. Uh, so basically, there's. Uh, I did a show in the UK uh, called uh, Asian Provocateur, and I got working with a director called Ben Green, and Ben and I uh, became good friends and sort of creative kind of soulmates, if you like. You know, we, we've got we've both got very similar tastes, and we'd had this idea. Uh, we'd had this idea about you know documenting being in America. And then Ben came over to uh, direct uh, the first series of first season of Carpool Karaoke for, for Apple TV. Sure. Um, and then him, uh, and then and then he and the exec of that show, Eric Pankowski, those two sort of got involved with the pitching side of things. Um, and so I was sort of still in the UK, getting feedback about it. So, um, so they were vouching for you. Yeah, because essentially, what you know, Flo will tell you. I, I strongly believe that my career benefits from me meeting as few people as possible in terms of networking or pitching <laughs> or anything like that. I think it's only in my interest to be kept in some sort of cell mm -hmm. until it is time to actually do the job. Do you know what I mean? Because when it comes to networking or... I'll give you an example. I, I had a big meeting with Flo and an ITV channel in the UK and it was like with like the heads of like this, these commissioning executives and I couldn't get out of my coat. So I like I was wearing like this big sort of like winter coat and I just couldn't undo the zip. So I had to say to these people that I'd literally met seconds earlier, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to do this meeting in my coat. And then sat doing the meeting in the coat. But every time I got animated, you could hear like the rustle of like the, of the winter gear. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Where I was really getting into it. And then in the end, one of the execs pulled the coat over the top of me like a snake shedding its skin. Do you know what I mean? So I said to Flo, like, I think this is evidence that really I shouldn't be at meetings. Mm -hmm. And then you can bring me out after as like, some sort of exhibit once it's been done. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, we're sitting here 
on the corner of Rodeo Drive in yes. Wilshire in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Uh, so do you feel like nine months later you've, <laughs> you've, you've made it as an American? No. Even before the show airs, you've succeeded, you've made... No, uh, no, unfortunately. I mean, transition to I tell you what, I, I, I full-blooded American comedian. No, sadly not. Holly, you've gone Hollywood. No, I haven't gone Hollywood. I haven't gone Hollywood enough yet, really. I, I want to. I want to achieve that kind of arrogance and sort of disconnect from reality and sort of mm. being an arsehole to people. That's kind of my. That's when I know I'll have made it. Do you know what I mean? But um, maybe you should talk more with your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's already achieved that. He's he's already on that. He's already operating at that level. But um, no, I mean, the, the weird thing for me as a Brit is like, and I guess uh, uh, people in LA and, and New York, where you're from, are, are used to this. Is seeing stuff from movies like blows my mind. Like, I I can't. You know, we're in we're in the Pretty Woman location. That right. that to me, it just blows my mind. Do you know what I mean? Like that that I still can't get used to so I find that pretty amazing but you can try going in the stores and see if they won't I want to do that big I want to do that big mistake yeah. thing I want to do that big mistake thing that's not my ultimate ambition it's to go into a shop with loads of bags mm. and go do you remember <laughs> you, yesterday I came in here and you said I looked like a terrorist <laughs> big mistake big mistake and then walk out I'd love to do that um, that's how I know I'll have made it what would you tell other comedians from around the world thinking of coming here don't, other than get your own TV show yeah I'd say don't come like Call there's a lot Showtime. of comedians there's mm -hmm. a load of comedians there and it's are. competitive enough as it is like don't please don't come um, no I think that you know my experience my experience of, of coming over here is I wondered when I was in the UK I, I think that America I think the United States they're the very best stand-up comedians over here are unbelievable i think they're exceptional and that is the reason i was so drawn to american comedies i think that just incredible you've got incredible comedians over here and then when i came over here and saw how competitive and difficult not difficult but how many comedians there are and how many gigs there are i realized why that is why your best comedians are so good because you have to be amazing to to rise to the top because there are so many comics doing it and I do think that's true of Britain as well but it really did strike me in the US there's so many comedians that that is why it it's almost like a training ground for like you're going through the boot camp if you like to, to make it and, and become a really excellent comedian so I would say to people coming over here that it's a very weird mix in LA because in LA you, you you'll be in a restaurant or a bar and you'll see somebody from a movie and it's an amazing and you think anything can happen but then you go and do a gig and you think oh, I was going to take me ages to get anywhere doing this so I think it's sort of um, I think the truth of it is is that uh, you have to be prepared to come and and work at it but if you work at it the rewards hopefully are there I guess I mean it's a fun scene to be a part of that it is Ramesh congratulations on the series and thanks very much and thanks for getting out of your cell <laughs> thank, thank you to Flo for letting for letting Romesh out. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Yeah, my time's coming up to a limit now, so I'm gonna have to put back into containment. All right. Thank you. <laughs>
I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.